It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. Welcome to Forward Nation Radio. I'm David Leventhal. Thank you for joining us for today's show on impeachment, of course, what else? And uh, the latest debate between sane people trying to succeed President Donald Trump. But first, our most important story of the week, the Mets. The New York Mets baseball club fires its longtime manager, Carlos Beltran, despite his undefeated record as manager of the New York Mets. I mean, Sure, a naysayer would say that he didn't have any wins either during his two-month off-season tenure as New York Mets manager. But still, he was fired after some dithering by the New York Mets, not getting to it right away. Turns out Beltran was one of the lead miscreants in the baseball science-stealing scandal, wherein, in case you've missed this news... It was a concerted effort by people on the Houston Astros several years ago to steal signs from the catcher to the pitcher, steal pitches, basically, to give them an edge, which ultimately helped lead to a World Series win for the Houston Astros. Carlos Beltran, a player at the time, was the only player to be cited by Major League Baseball because of his lead role in creating this scheme to steal signs to cheat during baseball games and the people involved were punished including ultimately carlos beltran not necessarily punished enough to send a message to others not to do it them having achieved great success for their thievery but at least some punishment and finally again after a little bit of dithering the new york mets decided that they had to let go of carlos beltran Doing it in a way, of course, where they gave him the opportunity to take the high road by saying that he had decided that it would be a good thing if he left because he would be a distraction for the team, rather than immediately publicly firing him by saying he's a fucking cheater and a loser. And this is just another indication, something I've been talking about for the last few months on the show, when cheating becomes the norm in professional sports and ergo in our society as well. A tolerance for it throughout our society continues to be disgraceful, despite the fact that Major League Baseball was forced to actually do something in this case. And it trickles down. Yes, trickle down finally works. Not in the way we're always being told. Turns out, though, while the money to the fabulously wealthy and successful in this country doesn't tend to trickle down to everybody else, the way they conduct themselves in sports, in business, and yes, in politics, tends to trickle down to the rest of us and create the cheating society that we have now, where it is basically okay for people to cheat. I find it remarkable, my own personal experience, I sometimes use some mildly salty language in front of my children. I'm sure I shouldn't do that. But that tends to get people around me really upset. How could you say damn in front of your eight-year-old kid? Your eight-year-old kid said damn. And yet, even within my family, we tell jokes about cheating. When we're playing games, sports, we don't actually do it. Not most of us, anyway. But it's kind of okay to joke about cheating. And when my kids joke about cheating or attempt to engage in cheating, 
that seems to be less problematic in a country that I guess can't really tell often what is important and what's not. That's less important than the fact that one of them might say damn on occasion. Uh, Don't even get me started on our tolerance for violence in this country. We can have movie and TV show one after another that lauds cheating, but certainly they better not show a nipple. But we have created this cheating society because we tolerate cheating by the people we tend to look up to. Look up to, by the way, this gives me a chance to talk about another aspect of Carlos Beltran and and the baseball scandal, at least about Carlos Beltran. I'm actually really excited, not just for the cheating thing, that the Mets got around to firing Carlos Beltran. Because otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to root for the Mets this year. I am, yes, I have to admit, a lifelong Mets fan, such as it is. And I would not have been a Mets fan for as long as Carlos Beltran was their manager. Even if I could, like many of the Mets fans who have tickets to the games, I could even if I could get the average taxpayer to pay for my tickets, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have watched. I wouldn't have bought the products that were advertised. Why? Carlos Beltran, it doesn't surprise me that he's a cheater because I already know that he's a right-wing piece of shit. Carlos Beltran, very famously, and nobody has raised this as far as I've seen during this latest scandal, but in 2004, in the lead-up to the presidential election where George W. Bush, one of our most awful presidents and disgraceful presidents, you know, at least until the current piece of shit, was running for re-election, or really election, since he'd stolen the election in 2000. And several athletes, very highly paid people, who undoubtedly benefit tremendously from Bush's tax cuts for rich people, wrote a public letter to put their finger on the scale. It's okay, it's their right to get involved and, and speak their view in politics, just like everybody else. Carlos Beltran was one of those athletes who signed a public letter in support of the election of George W. Bush. Again, a disgraceful president. I was reminded of this, of course, while this was going on. And if Carlos Beltran had been the Mets manager, I would not have rooted for the Mets. This reminded me of many years ago when the hockey team I've rooted for my whole life, the New York Rangers, hired as its coach a guy by the name of Brian Trottier. Ranger fans were outraged because Brian Trottier had a long and successful, a glorious career, in fact, for the hated rival New York Islanders. That's not why I hated the Rangers for doing this and stopped rooting for the Rangers while Brian Trottier was their coach. Brian Trottier was a member of the right-wing, ultra-right-wing, out-of-their-fucking-minds John Birch Society. And I will not root for a team that is run by a guy who is a member of the John Birch Society. I would not cheer for them. I look at this whole scandal and think what goes on. I talk to people about my decisions and I would not root for these people. And they say, basically, come on, get a grip. It's just sports. And I think, what are you rooting for if not the people who are actually involved? You're rooting for one corporation against another? I also look again at the way people react that there is such a parallel between sports fans and politics and voting. And that's really the saddest part of this whole story, I guess. That people root for sports regardless. Your team's cheating. Your team's scumbag. Your team is right-wing shit. It doesn't matter. They're your team. Sound familiar? Trump supporters? 
Anyway, speaking of cheating little shits, impeachment. The impeachment was sent to the Senate a week ago, and just today, as, as I'm recording this, the trial begins. Of course, by the time you are listening to this, the trial, so to speak, we'll call it a trial because that's what the Constitution says, uh, even though it will not be anything like a trial. By the time you listen to this, in fact, the so-called trial will probably be over. The New York Times, again, summed it up in all the wrong ways with a headline reading, Parties Clash Over How to Run Impeachment Trial. Yes, to boil that down to its essence, one party thinks we should have an impeachment trial as the Constitution, fairness, law and order, the rules of our society would demand. The other party doesn't. Maybe that should have been the headline. It's way more accurate. The Dems delivered their legal case. As I've argued for the last several months on this show, it is an airtight, overwhelming, irrefutable legal case. So the GOP responded with name-calling. Well, that was their first response, of course. As we continue to see, through the GOP response, throughout the Senate, through Trump's lawyers, through Trump, a criminal cover-up, a nationwide criminal cover-up by a political party, so-called, that is, in fact, a criminal organization. In fact, as I'm going to record this, it looks now like this, in fact, may not become a trial at all of Donald Trump, as I've pointed out. It will not be a trial of Donald Trump. In fact, what it may be is a political hit job against Joe Biden. You know, the thing that started this whole thing, that the president of the United States twisted American institutions and politics to do his political bidding, well, the Republican Party looks like it's now going to do that for him, if it can. If, if we get to have any trial at all, the Republicans will make damn sure that the trial will, in fact, be of Donald Trump's bullshit claims uh, that the corruption here was by Joe Biden and by his son. That's where we stand. That is how absolutely corrupt the Republican Party is. People still look at this and think the Democrats will be able to shame the Republican Party into doing their job. The idea, as I have argued repeatedly, that anybody will shame this criminal organization into integrity is absolutely absurd. It is offensive. It's not just that the Republicans will bury this, that this is a complete cover-up of, yes, criminal, but unconstitutional, un-American, anti-democratic activity on the part of their criminal leader. They don't even care that they will be doing it blatantly. They don't care how out in the open it is. In fact, one can argue that the more blatant it is what this cover-up is, it's actually better for the Republicans. They probably like it better that they are blatantly not doing their jobs. Because if you are a mindless piece of shit Trump and Republican supporter, and by the way, there is no other kind, then the only thing that really matters to you, the things that will let you, the thing that will most let you love your leaders 
is owning the libs. And nothing will own the libs so much as to just come right out and say, we don't fucking care about the Constitution. We don't care about our oath. We don't care about our job. All this is going on. Even as more and more info comes out about just how corrupt this president has been. Even limited to the issue of Ukraine as the Democrats have chosen to do. Of course, in the past week, we've heard a lot from Lev Parnas, thug, who's been getting his moment in the sun. Lev Parnas, who has come out this week and said publicly several times to anyone who will listen that the president knew it all. No surprise to anybody. president was behind all of this. Parnas, in fact, has come out and said that he threatened foreign officials on behalf of the president of the United States. That he committed extortion on behalf of the president of the United States. And it turns out Mr. Parnas, thug, has the documents to back this up. He's been releasing documents throughout the week, etc., with the promise of more to come, revealing new details about Trump's pressure campaign on Ukraine, increasing, in the words of the New York Times, calls on the Senate Republicans to subpoena additional documents and witnesses. Ha 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 ha, that's a good one. He has turned over letters, notes, and text messages that further link Trump more closely to the efforts to get Ukraine to announce investigations into the president's political rivals. In other words, the slam dunk case against President Trump just keeps getting more and more slam dunkier. Trump, of course, responded to the latest accusations and revelations from Lev Parnas, first by saying he doesn't even know him. That's Trump's usual first response, of course. Regardless of all of the pictures and the videos showing the two palling around in many different venues, in many different circumstances, at many different times. Nope, don't even know the guy. And, by the way, who is this Melania chick? Never heard of her. But, of course, the the big argument coming from Trump and the Republicans is, understandably, besides, Lev Parnas is not someone you can trust. The man is a thug. He's a criminal. He is, in fact, as he's described, a, an associate of Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. And by the way, even that sleaze, who's described as the president's lawyer, can't trust him either. You know, it's funny how Trump manages to give himself this wonderful defense that you cannot trust the statements, the testimony of anybody around me, anybody I know, anybody in my orbit, because they are all shit. They are all thugs. They are all criminals. Shall I just wait for a second and let that marinate just for a moment? He gets protection from the fact that the only people he associates with are goons, 
Gee, I wonder what that might tell some of us with Working Gray Matter. Also coming out this week, Robert Hyde. There's a name you might want to let rattle around for a little while. Described as a deranged Trump world hanger-on. And this is the best. Deranged Trump world hanger-on, liar, criminal, etc. And Republican congressional candidate. Because why the hell not? Why the hell not? It turns out he sent a series of messages to Parnas, which we have seen, which we have, suggesting that he was stalking the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, the one who had testified so credibly during the actual impeachment investigation in the House of Representatives. Stalking a U.S. ambassador. Now, of course, the response to this is, I wasn't being serious about that. I was just having some fun. I was just building up my Republican congressional credentials. It's serious enough, this possibility that he was stalking the American ambassador to Ukraine, that Ukraine has opened up an investigation of this. Not so much Donald Trump's America, but Ukraine has opened up an investigation of the charges, of the idea, that the allegations, the admissions by the Republican congressional candidate that he was stalking the U.S. ambassador. This is just, this is insane. This gets more and more organized crime, more and more thuggish by the moment. In fact, Martin Scorsese must be already preparing to make the movie about this. Martin Scorsese, for those who don't know, having an affinity for mob movies. Anyway, also this week was the release of a damning new report by the independent, the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office that in fact concluded that the Federal Budget Office, the Office of Management and Budget, which has been intricately involved in this whole scandal, acting on Trump's orders, violated federal law by suspending security aid to Ukraine. The nonpartisan Government Accountability Office has found a violation of federal law. Gee, why is that important? Since we all know about all the awful behavior that's been going on and the behavior that is easily subjected, should subject Donald Trump to ouster from presidency. Well, because the latest Republican argument in the light of overwhelming facts is there was no crime here. This needs to go away because there was no underlying crime. You can't have an impeachment. You can't have a conviction without an underlying crime. This, of course, has been blatantly refuted by, hmm, what do we call these people? Constitutional scholars who look and say this is a laughable argument that is, in fact, not only being made by the entire Republican criminal organization, but is now being made in the impeachment trial by Donald, Trump, by Donald Trump's lawyers. It is, in fact, just the argument that they're making in their rebuttal. There was no crime, even though a crime is not necessary, and even though a crime was committed. Oh, by the way, also in impeachment news this week, shedding light on what's going on, Russia, it turns out, got in the act to help Trump as well. Who could have seen this one coming? 
Evidence has come to light that Russia was engaged in hacking in Ukraine and elsewhere to try to dig up fake dirt on Joe Biden, his son, whatever else. The leaders of Ukraine might have rebelled somewhat when they were asked to corrupt a U.S. presidential election. But certainly we know Vladimir Putin has no such reticence. We've been talking since the beginning, are American institutions holding? Or is Donald Trump destroying the United States government and the United States once and for all? We have generally been lauding over three years how our institutions have managed to somehow survive. Well, are they surviving? Because also this week, Congressman Schiff, lead impeachment uh, presenter for the House, is pointing out that the National Security Agency has been withholding documents from impeachment investigators in order to impede the investigation. This is getting scarier and scarier. This whole thing, what's happened, where we stand with impeachment and its dismissal, the cover-up, sheds more light on the question that we've been addressing, everyone's been addressing for several months now, which is whether Democrats should have been more inclusive regarding the impeachment. Should they have brought up more charges, gone into more of Donald Trump's criminal, unconstitutional behavior? They opted for a quick case with impeachable behavior that was so simple that even the public could understand it. And therefore, they felt, put pressure on Republicans to actually do the right thing because the case was so simple and so overwhelming. Once again, we have learned that the Democrats overestimate Republicans, always overestimate Republicans, by ever giving any thought to the idea that they are anything other than complete trash, a complete criminal organization that has no interest in anything in this country other than its own success and power. The Democrats are overestimating this criminal organization. The Democrats thought there would be some integrity in the Republican Party. Actually, what the Democrats were hoping is that there would be four United States senators with an R next to their name with just the slightest amount of integrity. In other words, just four more than actually exist. Maybe, in light of what's been going on, The Democrats should have done a more comprehensive investigation and brought up everything and dragged this out for months, just continuing to investigate one area of Trump misconduct after another. You know, there's one of the most famous pictures, I think, in in at least recent U.S. history, I believe it's in the National Archives, is a picture of several white men wearing very expensive suits, lined up in a row, all with their right hands up in the air. This famous picture is of tobacco company executives swearing an oath to tell the truth before their congressional testimony many years ago. The reason, of course, the picture is so famous is because they then proceeded to go on and perjure themselves by lying about the role of tobacco companies in hiding the effects of cigarettes for decades, and for trying to kill children. Well, 
we should have a new version of that famous picture released very soon. And that will be a picture of GOP senators standing on the floor of the United States Senate being administered the oath of office by one of their own, Chief Justice John Roberts, all with their hands in the air, vowing, affirming that they will dispense justice, that they will do their jobs, and they will uphold the United States Constitution. Maybe there'll be an accompanying picture of their left hands behind their backs with their fingers crossed. And let's not forget that just this week, two names were added to Donald Trump's prestigious legal team. Yes, two names that will fit in absolutely perfectly with the Donald Trump orbit. Let's start with Kenneth Starr. He, the inquisitor of President Bill Clinton, who felt that every aspect of the president's sex life was worthy of his special counsel investigation, who, yes, engaged in a witch hunt, if you will, against the president of the United States. It was a disgrace, an outrage. Did that ruin his political career? Of course not. It was making his career because he proved himself to be a true and loyal Republican. Well, Kenneth Starr, in great bit of irony, was recently fired as the president of Baylor University. Why was he fired as president of Baylor University? Because the guy who was outraged by every aspect of Bill Clinton's sex life turns out couldn't give a crap about the hundreds of Baylor rape and sexual assault cases that occurred in the few years under his watch. He was, as pointed out, fired for indifference to sexual assault. Yes, this is integrity, Republican style. He'll be perfect on the Trump legal team. Also will be perfect Alan Dershowitz. Yes, Alan Dershowitz. The man whose integrity extends I don't know, to doing whatever needs to be done to get his face in front of whatever camera is available. This is a natural milieu for Alan Dershowitz because there will be cameras there. And Alan Dershowitz also knows how to support the interests of Alan Dershowitz. Also, it is possible that there will be some little girls there at the impeachment trial or Trump's legal team or Trump's orbit, which also might appeal to Alan Dershowitz. And I say might appeal. I have to point out that Alan Dershowitz was uh, brought up, was implicated in the Jeffrey Epstein sex scandals. Uh, Turns out Alan Dershowitz was a visitor to Jeffrey Epstein's home or homes. Alan Dershowitz denies that he ever had inappropriate sex with an underage girl. I want to be clear about that. Yes, two names that will add all sorts of things to Trump's legal team, including the evidence of how wealthy people are never accountable. Anyway, before we move on, we got a picture this week, again, of some sanity. We got the final Democratic debate before the first caucus, and it was fairly remarkable. Let's start with the progressive agenda that was on display at the Democratic debate and how remarkable it was entirely, starting with how remarkable it was. I've said this before, how to the left, how liberal billionaire Tom Steyer either is or at least is positioning himself. Remarkable. I also think looking as I listen to the progressive agenda on display at the Democratic debate, that whatever happens in this next election, whoever hopefully becomes the next Democratic president while this country still exists, which would have to mean 2021, should build a monument to Bernie Sanders in Washington, D.C. 
whatever happens in this primary, for good and for bad, Bernie Sanders' impact on the Democratic Party, again, could not have been clearer. From discussions of child care, everybody on the stage agreed that America needs to do more to provide people in this country with child care. In other words, join the rest of the civilized world that provides people with child care. This is, as I've argued in the show, to a large extent, a a no-brainer. It is ridiculous the extent to which we now, in most of this country, force women to have babies and then do not provide them with the tools they need to raise those babies properly. Speaking of raising babies properly, education. The education that has been so neglected in this country for so long, and which I hope to be a subject of a special episode very shortly. Public education, starting in grade school and going all the way through college, has been neglected. Well, every person on that stage for the Democrats believe we need more education. They talked about trade. The United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. And every one of them, said that trade agreements need to be negotiated with the interests of labor and the environment in mind. They were even distancing themselves from Barack Obama just a few years ago and his negotiation of trade treaties and being more to the left saying we need to save the environment and promote the interests of labor. There was... As the, as the media tries to create scandals where none and, and conflict where none existed, I want to talk about a reasoning fallacy I've discussed several times in the show. Perfect is the enemy of the good. There was a debate, a reasonable one, on the USMCA, the, trade, the Trump proposed trade agreement. And, and it was highlighted by a Sanders and Warren discussion about whether to support the trade agreement. And what was remarkable about that disagreement, one said to support the agreement, Elizabeth Warren supports it, Bernie Sanders does not. But the remarkable thing there was how little disagreement there was between the two. They both agreed the agreement needs to be stronger. The difference in how they came down on the agreement came down to this argument as the perfect of the enemy of the good reasoning fallacy. That is a reasoning fallacy where you do not do something that is good Because it is flawed, because it is not perfect, and you sit around waiting for a better option. That is a mistake that we frequently make, all of us. But the perfect is the enemy of the good is not a reasoning fallacy if accepting the good precludes doing something better in the future. Not wanting to get married to someone we don't consider perfect isn't really the perfect is the enemy of the good reasoning fallacy because for most of us, the idea of trading up afterwards is not really an option. The idea of improving upon the good. And that's where they differed. They both felt that the agreement was lacking in some respects. Elizabeth Warren seemed to feel that we could pass the agreement and then, because it was an improvement over what we had, and then work to improve it further. Bernie Sanders was skeptical that if we passed the agreement, we would continue to work to improve it. That's all. That was the difference between the two that they kept trying to make into a huge conflict. But everyone on that stage agreed that all trade deals that we have negotiated in this country have been for and by the rich, primarily if not exclusively. Underlying everything in this debate, every discussion, was the inequality that Bernie Sanders started the discussion about, which 
Elizabeth Warren has made the cornerstone of her campaign. Underlying every discussion was an understanding of the spectacular wealth and power inequality in this country that has perverted everything we do. The fact that there was so much agreement among the Democrats bodes well for the future. I am hopeful that the Democrats throughout this process can maintain this kind of agreement, this kind of unity, and all rally around their winning candidate to avoid some of what we saw in 2016. But of course, the biggest thing in the debates was not how much unity there was among the Democrats, but just how remarkably much contrast there is between the political party of the Democrats and the criminal organization of the Republicans. We saw sense, we saw intellect, and we saw decency on that stage. We saw intelligence. We saw people who believe in America. We saw people who weren't trying to become president so they could steal everything that's not nailed down. One of the remarkable things about the debate was how much the people on the stage wanted to talk about climate. They responded to questions that weren't so much about climate with answers that brought in climate. The existential threat to this country and the world that they care about, that one political party in this country actually cares about, leaving a habitable planet for our children and grandchildren, avoiding the unbelievable upheaval, violence, and devastation that will result from our inability to immediately start addressing climate change. I want to go over at least one of the questions that was asked and, and and to talk about how it points out the contrast between the two political parties. Why are you best prepared to be commander-in-chief? I think that was the first question, one of the first questions at least that was asked. I wanted someone to respond by saying, because I don't have bone spurs? I was at the Women's March this past weekend. Always an uplifting experience to be around people who have some decency and intelligence. Yes, there was the occasional protester or fucking moron. One of the things that really caught my eye with respect to the protesters was the, was the sign, War Veterans for Trump. And I could, War Veterans for Trump? How could, you, how could a war veteran be for Trump? Considering what he has done to the military, considering that he has shirked blatantly his military responsibilities. And I think... You shouldn't get to wrap yourself in the American flag. I think there was like one person standing on the sign when I went by. Maybe there were a couple others who'd walked away at that point. But war veterans for Trump, this is what you support. This is what you want as a commander-in-chief. I was reminded, this whole discussion of commander-in-chief, and what we talked about before with the Republican criminal organization, how far it's fallen, that Joe Biden's true error, as was raised during the debate, came up at this point, supporting the Iraq war. He made a mistake, not necessarily the worst thing in the world, though it was based on the information that they had. Other people did have enough sense to vote against it. It kind of was a big vote. I think it's a real issue. But I think rather than the issue of his not making the right decision regarding whether we should go to war with Iraq, the big problem, the big error from Joe Biden was that Joe Biden trusted Republicans with his vote to authorize the Iraq war. People forget, not long-time listeners of this show because I keep bringing it up, but people forget that George Bush sold the Iraq War Authorization 
as a way, the best way, to prevent war in Iraq. That's what he had said to everybody. If you give me this power, we won't need to go to war because that will give me the, the strength I need to get Saddam Hussein to come to heel. And Joe Biden believed him. The concern now is that Joe Biden hasn't learned that lesson. Not just the lesson that we should avoid wars more than we have been, but the lesson that we should never, ever listen to a Republican when they promise something because they are fucking criminals and they are fucking liars. I think the big problem here, to quote from the great movie Animal House, face it, Flounder, you fucked up. You trusted us. But the whole debate was held. The contrast between the two parties, that is. The whole debate was held at a level beyond Trump's capability to comprehend or imagine. Yes, it is a great question to distinguish between the Democratic candidates who would be the best commander-in-chief. But let's be clear that there is no such question heading into the general election. We learned from the debate, or at least I did, the Democrats are ready. They're ready to take on Trump. I think they're ready to govern. Is the media ready? We still have that question, and frankly, that question is not going to be answered very well as far as I'm concerned. Because we got more bullshit coming from the media regarding the Warren Sanders dispute about what Bernie Sanders has said about a woman becoming president. This ridiculous garbage was made not only a big subject of the debate, but the big follow-up of the debate from much of the media. Until the media learns the difference between stupid and offensive questions and chasing garbage, chasing red herrings. We're in a lot of trouble heading into the 2020 presidential election. Let's be clear what I think is probably pretty damn clear about what happened in their private meeting. Bernie Sanders expressed skepticism as to whether America was ready to elect a woman president. Bernie Sanders, I do not believe, has any skepticism about whether a woman can be president. That's for the other side of the political aisle. And I think it's ridiculous to argue that that's what he might have said. What he undoubtedly said or meant to say was that maybe the American public is not ready to elect a woman, which is still problematic, but only problematic for Bernie politically, because it's a very legitimate question to ask, and we're all asking it. But of course, as a politician, you can't make that argument because the basis of that argument is the American public is misogynistic shit, or at least too much of it is. And that's the big question going into the 2020 election. Is the American public ready for a Democratic presidency, for a better presidency? They can't say it, I can. The public is the greatest impediment to democracy in America today. The discussion of climate, so uplifting in so many respects. Every one of them, taking it as the existential threat that it actually is was held in the context of the fact that in America today, the greatest sales of automobiles are large pickups and SUVs. And if the American public is this stupid, is this selfish, is this brain dead, we're not ready for a democratic president. We're not ready to keep existing as a functioning nation. The last thing I want to say briefly before we leave, I know it's a long show today, The last question really bothered me. The last question of this debate bothered me in many respects, especially regarding the media's role. And that question was, you guys are debating here, but 
whoever merges victorious from the Democratic Party is going to have to go up and debate Donald Trump. And this debate is going to seem like child's play compared to Trump. Really? Nothing in the world gets to be called child in comparison to Donald Trump. Period. This isn't the child play. This is the grown-up debate. This is the substantive debate. This is the debate for intelligent people. This is the debate for non-children. What should have been asked is, you will be having to engage, perhaps, in child's play when you go up against the man-child that a large minority of this country decided to make president of the United States. The question shouldn't have been, are you ready to do the adult debate? This is child's play. But are you ready to sling feces with the primate-in-chief? Anyway, that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to talking to you soon. Be well until then. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 